This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 19th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. If excessive government is the bad guy for most libertarians, is a government that suddenly respects all rights of all people all the time sufficient to create a world we all want? Anthony Kamegna of Libertarianism.org and economist Steve Horwitz of St. Lawrence University sat down with me recently to discuss what happens when libertarians fall victim to so-called unicorn governance. When I listen to libertarians talk about uh, policies that they want to adopt that will help the poor uh, and, and ideas for dealing with persistent, seemingly intractable problems, there is a policy response and then the idea is once we have achieved that policy response, we uh, clean our hands, we walk away and that's it. And we're done, and now a thousand flowers will bloom. And that, that seems to be problematic for uh, a number of reasons. But how do you view that idea that there are, there are specific like changes that need to take place, and once those changes properly respect people's rights, once these people are not improperly incentivized by the government, the job is done? Well, I think there's a couple kinds of things you can say about that. Certainly one is that libertarians have to be very careful not to fall victim to the same sort of uh, a fantasy that, that, that Mike Munger calls unicorn governance, right? To just imagine, even if it's us developing these policies, that they're automatically going to play out and, and that we get a thousand flowers rather than a thousand weeds or, or a mix thereof. So I think that's one part of that. I also think, though, too, you know, libertarians have been hesitant in the past to talk about issues of culture and so on. And so when we, you know, just just changing policies may not be enough. Certainly, we want to think about the institutional level. How do we prevent, you know, the, the bad policies from coming back again? But how do we make sure that that people, you know, understand why these policy changes we might want to make are good and, and why they will help the people we want to help? Uh, I mean, I think if you don't do that, you run the risk of, of, of just reverting right back as soon as you libertarians would ever make the kinds of changes we might want to make. Yeah, there, there's a sort of uh, 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 rush among libertarians generally when, when they encounter an issue to say uh, that whatever an individual does, as long as it's a freely made choice, is mm -hmm. fine and consistent with libertarianism. Uh, but I think it's, it's very easy to find examples of freely chosen behaviors that are very, very uh, damaging and antithetical to liberty uh, and the libertarian's view of how the world should be. Um, so something that we're not too keen on, though we, we should do much more of it, is criticizing freely made actions uh, for being non-virtuous. I think we need a better, clearer, sharper focus on uh, promoting virtuous behavior as opposed to simply or merely free behavior. So now you both sound like uh, Lawrence Reed of well. the Foundation for Economic <laughs> Education, well. arguing that character character matters and it is just as important as liberty. It's yeah. a high compliment. Yeah, we, it, it's always a compliment. I, I would frame it a little bit differently. I'm, I'm, for me, I'm never – the word virtue and virtuous has so much baggage often attached with it that that's not the way I would frame this. Um, I think, though, you know, we can think of – I can think of examples of, 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 of – 
you know, bad voluntary choices. One thing that I've written a little bit about is parenting strategies, right? We can talk about the way in which uh, parenting uh, habits of the last 20 years have raised a generation of kids who might not be prepared to be free and responsible citizens. Um, I, I don't know if I want to use the word virtue in that context, but I certainly would want to say, look, if you're you know, if you're constantly bailing your kids out of things or you're, you know, trying to you know, complain to get your kids way all the time, I mean, sort of things, helicopter parenting things, those are bad choices and choices, I think, that actually undermine uh, a free society in the long run. All right. So getting from here to there, what are some specific things that people ought to be thinking about in terms of, yes, yeah, so we got the policy response we wanted, now what? Well, um, so one of my professors in graduate school uh, said that uh, the problem with, well, when I said that the problem with historians is, uh, speaking as a historian, is that they don't know any economics. They, historians don't know any economics whatsoever. The uh, professor responded, well, economists seem to not know any history. Uh, I think um, part of the problem that libertarians often have, at least from my perspective, is that we don't spend uh, too much time trying to understand the world from a variety of perspectives. Uh, and people who put so much stock in methodological individualism, approaching the social sciences with the individual as the fundamental unit of analysis, uh, should be much more keen on uh, exploring and adopting uh, when appropriate, at least, other perspectives on the world. Um, libertarians who limit themselves to only studying economics or only thinking about problems as an economist might uh, or a political scientist or, you know, we have, we have a superabundance of those fields represented within uh, libertarianism. And we're pretty loath sometimes to stop thinking that way uh, as number crunching, sort of uh, constantly talking about the mechanics of incentives, the mechanics of institutions. And um, there's uh, so much of a hyper focus on these things that it, they tend to become part of our personalities and even take over our personality. So you have this uh, sense that libertarianism is exactly who and what you are. And that tends to be pretty alienating from the rest of society, I think. Uh, it pushes us in a corner and it um, has the result that we don't often explore the world outside that corner. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to really, really dig into other people's ideas, their lives, their brains and perspectives and figure out how the world looks to them as opposed to us. Uh, well, several things I'd say. One, as an economist, I'm all in favor of limiting the supply of future economists. It <laughs> keeps my wages up. Uh, but I think you're right. And I think, I think at the sort of academic and intellectual level, we have overpopulated ourselves in, in economics and to some extent philosophy. What we need are more libertarians, whether they're academics or intellectuals and possibly wherever, who are serious about history, who are serious about the arts, who are serious about literature, uh, who are psychology. Why, you know, why don't we see more libertarians thinking about psychology in, in, in sophisticated ways? And I think part of the problem is there is this perception out there that those fields, many of those fields are dominated by progressives and by the left and that there's no way for libertarians to get in those fields as practitioners. Um, but we can, I think that's wrong, but we can certainly get into those 
and 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 make the sort of cultural stuff part of our conversations in ways that even if we're not professionals, right, that we don't want to be one-dimensional libertarian man, right? We want to be able to talk about those things. And we want to be able to talk about social change and political change with a richer context of how that takes place, how it's taken place historically. I, I've maintained for many years that that you cannot change the world without working within music and art and literature. And the, I mean, we as libertarians, what's arguably the most powerful book that changed people's lives in the 20th century was Atlas Shrugged. Whatever its flaws, right, the, 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 the narrative, the storytelling, the, the, the way in which that book drew people in should tell us something about the power of stuff that isn't just strictly speaking economics or philosophy or the, the rest. And I, one, one other quick thing I'd add. Uh, libertarians, I, I haven't seen the numbers recently, but I'm pretty confident are disproportionately atheists. But until we take seriously the role of religion in society and understand how that motivates people, uh, for better or for worse, this isn't just a, you know, why is Islam bad? It's not, right? It's, it's about how religion I and mean, historically the role religion's played. Uh, we, we have to think seriously about that if we're going to be sophisticated thinkers about social change. So where do you think, specifically with respect to uh, faith, uh, where do you think that libertarians have failed to take that seriously? Well, I, you know, I think we do get into this kind of the hyper-rational libertarian. Sometimes it's the economic man version, but sometimes it's the natural rights. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, right, where, where – uh, and I think we are uh, often rationalists and skepticists, and, and I think it comes with the package in some ways. And I think you can do those things, but I think oftentimes we have been too quick to belittle faith uh, and to assume that people of faith are, are not pro-liberty. Um, there are reasons sometimes to think that for sure, but I think that those aren't an unnecessary connection. And I think at one level, a little bit more respect for people of faith and a little bit more sophisticated understanding of the role of religion. When we say things like, you know, Christianity is all about the Crusades and the, and, and the pogroms and all this and sort of not also talk about the way in which Christianity was a deep part, say, of ending slavery. I think, I think we're not, we're not, we don't have a balance there for the role that faith and religion has played in, in, in sort of creating the modern world and for better or for worse. My view has always been that most libertarians seem Christian to me. Uh, I myself am not. I'm one of these atheist, empiricist, rationalists, mm -hmm. you know, social scientists. Uh, but uh, what what you said really spoke to me in that I think that the the big thing is this sort of um, stubborn refusal to occupy the brain space of other yeah. people. Um, Whatever might be the origins of that that uh, way of acting, I think that libertarians are prone to it. Um, we are so confident in our a priori reasoning that uh, we think that we we know how the world looks through other people's eyes. Uh, we understand what it's like to look at the world while you also have a religious faith uh, that you know is ordering your your mind, structuring your world for you. Uh, those those ideas mean very very real things to people and affect uh, why they do what they do. So if we're trying to understand society, we had better not dismiss right. things right. like that or any other social categories, class categories yeah. that that libertarians tend to scoff at as invented collective identities. Those are really yeah, meaningful, right. yeah. um, and to that extent, they are real, uh, and and we should understand what they mean. Just two quick things to add there. I think one, 
that the power of the arts is our ability to get inside other people's heads, right? I mean, the power of literature for sure, but uh, other arts too. So I think if, you know, it, I agree, we need to do that and we can get that kind of, you know, Smithian empathy and sympathy through the arts. The other, the other thing I think is that to the degree that we as sort of libertarians as social scientists and economists have stressed, you know, the subjectivism of like Austrian economics, but also sort of Hayek's whole worldview that we can't even talk about the social world except by starting from the perceptions of individuals. Well, we better be sure that we can understand how people see the world. And if we don't get things like religion or other things that move people that are that are causal factors in their behavior, we're just not understanding the world very well. So methodological individualism applied broadly across several different uh, metrics that people use to make their own decisions. That's right. I mean, you can be a methodological individualist and and, and not deny the importance of race or class or gender or religion or any of those things, right? Those are, those institutional and, and identity kinds of things feed into the choices that individuals make. They don't determine them, but they certainly affect them. And you can't really even understand individual choice without understanding the way that those might those kinds of categories might influence. So I I hate uh, taking these kinds of discussions and turning them into, I guess, how do we sell the product better? But, uh, you know, Anthony, when you and I talked before about uh, class and how uh, modern libertarians, at least, sort of deny that as a legitimate way of uh, looking at society and the choices that people make, uh, you know, recapitulate that just a little bit. Well, so uh, the vulgar Marxist position on history, let's say, is that absolutely everything about you is determined from birth based on how you were, you know, how you entered into the world. What were your the material conditions of your existence? Uh, that's going to determine virtually everything about you. Now, there are extremely few, vanishingly few vulgar Marxists out there today, uh, especially in academia, maybe more on the internet. Um, But the vulgar libertarian position is that absolutely nothing about you is determined by any outside factors and everything is within your power as an individual. Well, that that sounds kind of megalomaniacal to me rather than libertarian. That your think, perceptions of the <laughs> what, world, yes. that you, you are homo economicus. You can make it well, manifest, right. whatever and, it might be. Right. And even something like language has no role at all in how you might understand yeah. the world you know, beyond, that, that's beyond your kind of conscious control. Yeah. Now, when I, uh, as I said, I'm an atheist, empiricist, rationalist, all that. But if, if I look out into the world and I see God anywhere, it's in the market. It's, uh, I, I was telling uh, Professor Horwitz here before we recorded that I think uh, communists and Marxists should read uh, uh, Leonard Reed, The Miraculous Market, and I Pencil, and and just find uh, there's the truth right there. This amazing, impossible uh, to, to understand system of the market somehow coordinates everybody's desires and maximizes them uh, pretty well. Um, and none of us can understand it. We can't hope to because we can't. We're limited to our own brains. We can't understand how people come to their decision making uh, in a precise way. We can't understand how and exactly to what degree they value vanilla ice cream over chocolate ice cream. But somehow the market coordinates all these things. It's miraculous. It really is miraculous. It's as though, you know, if God is is the ultimate force that you can't understand. Well, boy, that sounds like the market to me. Uh, you know, maybe there there should just be sort of 
more of that kind of engagement with people on the left, if you will, that uh, somehow society manages to, to do really incredible, wonderful things when it is not controlled. Now, there's where class comes into it. The real origin point for the classes is not like Marx would have it, property, just carte blanche. Whatever you own is going to determine where you are in society. Rather, uh, the classes come about when some people force others to obey their will. Uh, and that immediately splits the population into warring factions. Uh, and if we can break down that uh, barrier, that, that use of force, and convince more people that that is really what's wrong. It's not owning stuff. It's not calling things yours. It's using force on other people, whatever the circumstances that divides us into uh, competing factions. And I, and I think that sense of awe and wonder about the market really is important and powerful in the ways that Anthony just talked about. I think the only thing that I would say differently there is I don't think we want to frame it as something that we can't understand. I mean, we, we can't know it in its details, but we can understand the principles on which it operates. And I think we have to be draw a very careful distinction there. Uh, but all that said, yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the problems is that we don't talk about the market enough as an arena, a sphere of social cooperation, right? The story, by the way, about uh, von Mises is, is that one of his alternative titles for human action was social cooperation. And he chose to go with human action for other reasons. And it's interesting to think how our perception of economics among many libertarians would be different if that had been the case. And so when we think about the iPencil story, for example, it's a story about social cooperation. None of us in a modern market can exist on our own. In fact, we, we owe everything to the fact that we have these institutions and rules and attitudes that enable us to cooperate. Now, it's not the intentional cooperation of, an, say, an Amish barn raising or something like that, but nonetheless, it's an extraordinarily way for people to cooperate in anonymity. It enables us to cooperate with people who we don't know, who we've never met, who are you know across the globe. And I think when you really, really dig into that, it is a profoundly humane and awe-inspiring vision of, of how human beings have sort of moved through this evolutionary process from, from the biological now to the social and cultural in, in, in processes that we cannot design and we can't control. And I think when we talk to the left, that seems to me to be a, another powerful entry point is to say, look – you know, you understand the problems with uh, design in the natural world, right? If you, if you accept Darwinian theories of evolution, you get the idea of order without design. And all we're saying is it works in the social world. And by the way, Darwin got it from us, but that, that's a different story, okay? So, so, so I think sort of that analogy to me is always a particularly powerful one, and it does – we need a vision of the of, of, of markets and freedom and, and and so forth that that inspires that awe and wonder that makes people want to want to grapple with it because it's so mar it's so marvelous to use Hayek's term. All right, so in Anthony, we talked a little bit about uh, how government uh, leverages classes and makes use of class as a tool. Yeah, so I was—I think I was ex the example you're referring to is probably Bacon's Rebellion and the literal invention of race as a product of the Virginia House of Burgesses in the late 17th century. We can actually—this is why I think libertarians should spend more time studying history. We can literally pinpoint the invention of race as a concept to late 17th century Virginia. Uh, and it was when they created the slave codes uh, as a response to Bacon's rebellion. In, in 1676, uh, Nathaniel Bacon and uh, several of his 
fellow backcountry Virginians who were promised land as uh, former indentured servants. Uh, they thought the government wasn't doing enough to protect their claims from uh, Indian raids. And so they plotted to overthrow the government of Virginia. And they, they came pretty damn close by uh, running the government out of Williamsburg and taking over the capital. Um, and to prevent this, actually many slaves joined the indentured servants and it looked as though the, the colony was really going to have a revolution and the elites would probably be purged and their lands taken. So to prevent this from ever happening again after the Royal Navy helped take the colony back, uh, the legislature invented slave codes which condemned everyone with a black skin as a slave and everyone with a white skin as a at least potential master. Uh, and this is literally where the modern idea of race was invented out of whole cloth as a matter of uh, statute. And uh, it was expressly a way for the wealthy to join with the poor and prevent a class war on the basis of property ownership uh, and to translate that by law into a race war between white and black. Uh, and the Virginia statutes got adopted throughout the British colonies as the, the standard model for how to deal with slavery. Slavery became uh, a legal category on the basis of race, not on the basis of bad luck, which it was before. Um, and boy, that's the kind of story libertarians should tell people on the left. Not that we don't see color, not that we don't care about race, not that we can just get rid of the Civil Rights Act and everything will be fine. We need to pinpoint the actual legitimate causes of these phenomenon, uh, and they are with the state. And, and on in the reverse, right, of the sort of the flip side of that is I think we need to tell good historical stories about the liberating powers of markets and economic growth. I mean, some of my own work on gender and the family has really focused on the way in which uh, markets made it possible for women to get out of get out of the house, made it possible, help create equality in, in marriage, right? And even now has given us equality in marriage regardless of gender, right? So that those same positive social forces are in place and that that, that it's not the case that, that the typical story on the left is that markets subordinate and, you know, political power liberates. And in fact, the story is much often the reverse. And I think the important part of this too is that, that you know, History's on our side in ways that we often don't make use of, as Anthony's saying, right? That that the more we know about this, these histories, and I do think, by the way, that people's people who reject markets and reject the rest of sort of libertarianism frequently do so on their basis of beliefs about historical events. I mean, the Great Depression is a big obvious example of this, but you can think of others, right? And so I think it's incumbent upon us to work hard to develop those kind of counter narratives. I think, you know, for me, when the Great Recession and the financial crisis happened in, you know, 07 and 08, my very first thought knowing the Great Depression was we need to get the other story out there now and get and sort of right now, don't let the other narrative sink in. Don't let this become kind of ossified in the way that the Great Depression did. So I think understanding that history not just helps us see the ways in which those categories matter and that, that oftentimes it was the state who's made them into problems, but also the way that markets and freedom has, has liberated people, uh, particularly when we think along gender and race and so on. In, in a modern context, Anthony, what you were talking about with the creation of race as a statutory matter, in a modern context, I think about license. That is how the government creates and grants license to this group of people and that group of people and sometimes puts them effectively at odds 
by doing so. Right. And, and I would just, I think this is, you know, this isn't just about selling the product, as you said earlier, Caleb. I think it's about how we should think deeply about our work. But but so much of what governments do divides us and divides us in ways that ha- that where the burden of that division falls upon those who can handle it the least, the least well off, right? I mean, occupational licensure laws have disparate racial effects, but they have disparate economic effects too. Uh, we can, we've, we've done it to death with minimum wage, doesn't make it any less true, right? We can talk about the impact of public schools. All of these things, the fact that these things harm particularly poor folks, and, and often those harms are disparate by race or by gender, we should be talking about those things. There's no reason why we shouldn't. Um, people care about those categories. They matter. And frankly, our whole tradition, the whole classical liberal tradition, is a tradition of, of equality and a tradition that, that, that wanted to be able to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to, to achieve the things they wanted to achieve. So I'm a 16-year-old person. I'm a radical libertarian. And I would like to be an academic. I would like advice from each of you on what I should study when I go to college. Uh, my advice, I think, would be to study whatever you're really genuinely passionate about, because you're going to need something to get you through graduate school. At least, if you know you want to be a real tried and true academic, you got to go to graduate school, and that's a bear to get through. Especially, you know, most people don't make it through, at least in history programs. And it's not because they can't hack it; it's because they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, be very, very sure that you're passionate about what you're doing. Um, have a, a research topic that you care the most about, uh, because that's going to be what you're doing most of, of the time you're uh, working on academia. So, really, really make it count. Um, and I would also say it's not about what to study, but don't try to change the world. Uh, let the world happen and don't stick your hands in it and try to change it around to suit your vision of how things should be. Uh, that usually is where people go wrong. Not to make it too dramatic, but it often results in you know pyramids of skulls and whole populations being killed. Don't try to make the world a better place. Just do you and, and do what you do extremely well. Uh, care a lot about it, and I think the rest will tend to work itself out. But if you get if you get in the muck and you really try to change the world, probably you're not going to be such a great person at the end of it. I would add, I think, don't be afraid to go investigating those other disciplines that we talked about earlier, right? I mean, the temptation is, I, the, the person you just described, by the way, Caleb, was me, right? I was the libertarian when I was 16. I went off to undergraduate with a fairly good sense that I might want to become an academic. Um, and, and so it, the temptation is, okay, uh, only study those things that seem to be directly related to the libertarianism. I, got, I wasn't going to be an economics major, and that happened once I took a class. I had that experience of you know, the scales falling from my eyes. Um, but I think you know, e, you know, PPE, right, politics, philosophy, economics is great. But man, take some history courses. Take, I wish I'd taken more art, any art courses. I wish I'd taken more literature courses. I never took a psychology course in college. I was so, I was the guy, right, focused on, the, on the, that core, okay? I think, I think I came out all right. But I think if I was giving young people advice today, I would say investigate those other things. And don't be afraid, again, because you think that the bias is, is, is anti-liberty or left-wing or whatever. Go in there, as Anthony said, do good work, be serious, show – faculty care much more about students who are actually engaged in the work than they do about your particular politics, right? The fact that you're coming to office hours and you're writing good stuff, that's what matters. And I think you can find ways in, in, in those other disciplines perhaps to make a, to make a contribution. Uh, again, the ones we talked about earlier, all – 
are there's so many things, so many projects that that libertarians could do if they would take up those those disciplines seriously. I I just got out of graduate school uh, about a year ago now, and. Uh, you know, so the experience is fresh in my mind, and it could have very easily been a terrible experience because there were, of course, no libertarians around. I was lucky if there was an IHS flyer hanging up in our office now and then. Um, and uh, significant numbers of the department were Marxists uh, in the true sense, not not just, oh, they're from the left, so they, they must be Marxists. Real, actual Marxists. And, um, you know, I think the the... It, it was really great for me to not be in the libertarian echo chamber. Um, it's often said among libertarians that, oh, the Marxists uh, never read any of our stuff. They have no idea what libertarianism is about and they don't know the literature. But we have to read their stuff. That's true. We do have to read their stuff uh, and they don't know our stuff. So we're extra prepared. And all you have to do is, you know, you go in a grad seminar, a third of the students haven't read anything, a third of them have read a bit and are trying to fake it through the, the class, uh, and maybe a third have, have actually done the work. If you're just in that third that does the work, you, you're, you should be smooth sailing to a very successful career. Uh, you just have to care about what you're doing. You have to show up on time and do the work uh, and not get discouraged that people surrounding you are different from you. And, and I think the other thing to think about here, too, is if you are sort of familiar with, call it the libertarian canon and those kind of core PPE ideas, you can take those into other disciplines in really creative ways. If you understand public choice theory, suddenly history and literature become this sort of wide open field where you can tell – get into completely different interpretations of historical events or texts or works of art by gently using that theory to understand behavior that way. And so, you you know, if you start thinking about libertarian ideas, not as conclusions about how the world should be, but a set of analytical tools that you can bring to the table. Spontaneous order theory is another one, too. There's all kinds of things in Hayek, for example, you can use. Those are tools that you can use to understand the world. You can take those into other disciplines in interesting ways and, and be a very clever, very different, very interesting, both student and then scholar. Anthony Kamegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org, and Steve Horwitz is an economist at St. Lawrence University. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.